this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. You know, one of the things that kind of bugs me about the whole world of entrepreneurship is the way we tend to put on a pedestal entrepreneurs who build these fantastic companies. And if you picked up any kind of magazine, um, any newspaper story, any media story about entrepreneurship, it's like about the you know rags to riches story, the person who starts with nothing and sells their company for $100 million. And we've been you know, built to sell radio. Uh, you know, we've done the, we've done the same sorts of stories many, many times before. And of course, the reality of building and selling a company is far different than that, right? There are many more modest success stories, many more kind of singles rather than home runs, to use a baseball analogy. And my next guest shares her story with a high degree of humility, and I'm appreciative of that. Her name is Julie Nervelli. Uh, she started a company called White Girl Salsa. She rebranded as Winking Girl Foods. And by the way, she tells the story of the name and why she rebranded in, in the episode. But she went on to build a company that was successful in many measures. She got Whole Foods and Kroger and Safeway to stock the product, but she ultimately reached a point in the business where she was going to shut it down and declare personal bankruptcy. And she realized that she built something of value and she sent an email to four potential acquirers. And what happens next is an interesting story. And I think it shares the true nature of many exits. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Julie Nervelli. Julie Novelli, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so you are the founder of a company called Winking Girl Foods, but it didn't start out with that name. It started out with a, a name, White Girl Salsa. Tell me more. Okay. Uh, well, I started making salsa when I lived in California, and I made green tomatillo salsas. And my Hispanic friends couldn't believe how what a great salsa I could make. So they started calling it white girl salsa. And for 15 years, people would ask me to bring it to parties and tell me I should sell it. And so eventually I decided to do that. And so you were making it like, tell me how you start a food company. Cause to me, it's like, it's just a mess. Like you've got to get food regulations. You got to figure out how to package it. I mean, it's like, how did you get this thing? Were you literally like making salsa in your kitchen or did you quickly sort of get out of the kitchen? How, what was the next step? Well, so my salsa was fresh, and the idea of selling a perishable product was not that appealing to me. So I researched how to get it into a jar, which requires a cooking element, which changes the flavor and the appearance. And then I had all my friends try that version, and everyone said, nope, this isn't white girl salsa. <laughs> so I thought I didn't have a business. And then I had friends who worked in large companies 
take my salsa for people to sample and then fill out a little survey of, you know, on a scale of one to five, would you buy this over your favorite salsa? And I had great results. So I moved forward. And, and when I started my business, I had a nine month old baby. So I didn't want to make the salsa. That's not what I was passionate about. So I found a manufacturer out of the gate to help um, scale up the recipe and to do the manufacturing for me. This is this company, Fresca? Um, Fresca eventually became a partner, but at that time it was Silver State Foods in Denver. Okay, so you get a you get a contract kind of manufacturer, if you will. You give them the recipe and they make it for you. Is that how it works? Yes, exactly. Got it. And then they ship it out of their facility to the various stores you buy it? Well, at that time, so when I first started, I started as a farmer's market business. And that's a great way to start a food company because you can get feedback from your consumers about, you know, flavor, pricing, and so forth, and build those relationships with consumers. So when you go into retail, they're familiar with it and they want to support you. Um, So we would just, I would just pick up the product um, from Silver State Foods and then store it at my house and then take it to the farmer's market. Got it. And so... Take me through the evolution, because at one point you changed the name from White Girl Salsa to Winking Girl. What precipitated the change? Why change? It was such a tough decision to make that change. Um, So many people love the name White Girl Salsa. And of course, that was my roots and, and the foundation of the company. And a couple of things happened simultaneously. I had an outsourced sales team, and they said... With all the product extension ideas you have, how are you going to make the name White Girl Salsa work with all of your ideas? And then um, also at that same time, a little retailer you may have heard of called Target (laughs) said, we love your branding and we love your product, but we are not putting White Girl on the shelf. So given my objectives and that I wanted to grow the company, to be a nationally recognized brand, I decided to change the name. Got it. And I also understand in reading some of the material uh, before the interview that that there was also a component of of potentially wanting to get acquired and and thinking that potential acquirers wouldn't go for the white girl salsa name. Is that right? That's true also. And, and I think, you know, that kind of ties in with my thought of growing it to a large brand and that was in order to be acquired and so yeah acquirers also would probably not want to touch that the name white girl salsa right did you get feedback from customers because i mean i understand the name was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek like how can a white girl actually make decent salsa like it wasn't intended to be racially charged but people not understanding the backstory could certainly interpret it the wrong way did you deal with that at all? You know, it was really interesting because the vast majority of people loved it and thought it was a fun name. And very rarely we would see, you know, on Twitter or something, um, some people that were offended by the name. And, you know, we would politely tell them the brand story. And sometimes that changed people's minds and sometimes it didn't. But, um, you know, I... It, for me, it was more of a celebration of the, my relationship. And so I always felt comfortable 
with that. And like I said, most people love the name and thought it was a lot of fun. So you had these aspirations, you changed the name. Um, at this point, like give me a sense when this was back 2016, is it around the name change? Uh-huh, right. Okay. So you're you're looking to get into Target. Have you got any other national distribution at this point? At some at somewhere I'd read that Whole Foods had taken it on, at least in, in the Colorado area. So at that point when we changed the name, we were um probably in about seventy-five percent of the Whole Foods stores. Uh, we were in Kroger, maybe I think about five hundred Kroger stores, Safeway. We had about two thousand at that point. Wow. And how much salsa are you selling at this point? Like, like what was your yeah. revenue, I guess, is my question. Um, we were still under a million, which is considered, you know, small for food brands. So you're in Whole Foods, you're in Kroger and Safeway, but, but just shy of a million in revenue. Right. What was the, what was the next step? Like what, where did you go from, how was the reaction to the new brand? Did, did it accelerate adoption among consumers? Did it detract from it? Like what, what was the impact of the new name? Well, it's hard to say. Um, you know, we, I had a marketing budget around, you know, speaking to consumers about the name change. And then um, distributors in the food industry are extremely challenging to work with. And we had been notifying them of the upcoming name change. And every time they would place an order for White Girl, we would say, are you sure you need this much inventory? The new name is coming. And unfortunately, the buyer of, with one of the distributors didn't manage the inventory. And we had a $30,000 chargeback. Of, so we basically had to buy back $30,000 worth of White Girl salsa. And that was a huge financial hit to a small company. And that took pretty much the majority of our marketing budget to um, talk about the name change. So that became a huge challenge for the business. So let me, okay, so let me, let's get into that. So the, at this point, you're no longer selling through farmer's markets. You've got distributors involved. So Whole Foods is the, is the end. Let's just say Whole Foods or Kroger or Safeway is the end retailer. But between you and them, there's a distributor. Is that right? Exactly, yes. Got it. And so the distributor makes the order, but they have the rights to return the product. Is, is that right? Yeah. So you, with a distributor, you have, you have to guarantee the sale of product when they take you on. So a huge problem in the food industry is the distributor is given way too much power and they're literally in the position of having a monopoly. So if you want to sell the whole food, they use one primary distributor. So you have to be in that distributor. So you have no negotiating power with the distributor and they take advantage of their position of being in a monopoly position. And basically. so who... Who pays your invoice? Is it the distributor or the end retailer like Whole Foods or Safeway? The distributor pays the invoice, but they hold back money for various reasons, and that's called chargebacks. Um, so you could have a $20,000 invoice, and they might pay you $2,000. Um, I've also been in the position of what they call a negative balance. So 
on your $20,000 invoice, they may say, you owe us more than $20,000. So you're in a negative balance and we're not paying your invoice. Wow. So this charge, this $30,000 chargeback, that was um, a clerical error at the distributor. They, they, between the name change, they started to obviously mix up the two and realize that they were, they had, they had overpaid you essentially by $30,000. Is that right? No, they just didn't manage the white girl inventory. So at the, when the switch happened from white girl to winking girl, they had $30,000 worth of inventory that we had to take back. Um, and so, you know, they don't bill you $30,000. They just don't pay you what they owe you. Got it. So you're expecting a fat check for 30 grand and all of a sudden there's nothing. In essence, correct. So what happened next? <laughs> it's pretty exciting. After that. Um, so I, I had this idea of launching cooking sauces. At the time, Frontera was the only company playing in that space. And it's a cooking sauces in a pouch. And I saw a huge opportunity for the cooking sauces and the economics of the sauces compared to the salsas was much more attractive. So I went out to investors and tried to raise money. And a lot of the feedback was not interested in a salsa company. Um, you know, salsa category is pretty much flat, not that exciting. Um, however, I had all my salsas were green. So I was the only company in the country to just sell green tomatillo salsas. Green, do you mean environmentally friendly or green meaning based on a green like food product? Yes, green based, the color of the salsa is green because it doesn't I have see. tomatoes and it has tomatillos are the main ingredient. Got it. So, so after the feedback from investors of not interested in a salsa company, I brought my idea of the sauces and tried to show how the economic, economics of the sauces were so much more appealing. And the investors said, really interesting idea. These sauces look great. Come back and talk to me when you get those launched. <laughs> so I scrounged money. Um, and one great way for food companies to get money is Whole Foods has a program called a local producer loan program. And I, over my 10 years in business, had three different loans from Whole Foods to help grow my business. So the third loan from Whole Foods was to help get the sauces launched. And so I got the sauces launched with the help of a loan from Whole Foods and then um, Colorado Lending Source and Colorado Enterprise Fund. Those two organizations are in place to help grow Colorado businesses when you're not in a position to get conventional debt. How, how much money did you need to get the sauces launched? Well, uh, um, around 100000 would have been ideal. Um, but I was I was only able to get about fifty thousand. And then was, with the oh, sorry, sorry. I was just going to ask with the with the loan uh, the local producer loan program from Whole Foods, like what kind of deal terms do they offer local producers? I'm, I'm assuming it's it's a loan, and then you pay it back uh, under special terms. Like what, what kind of terms do you get? 
It's a five-year loan, 5% interest, and a $65 application fee. It's an amazing, amazing deal. Got it. So why do you need the money? I mean, you've been running uh, White Girl, then Winking Girl Salsa, a successful company seemingly for number of years, had you not built up enough money to, in terms of retained earnings to invest that in, in the sauces or, or were you growing it or maybe help me understand why you needed the money to go to, to launch the sauces? That's a great question. And in the, in the food industry, I mean, all industries, it's expensive to grow. Um, and I would argue that in the food industry, it's one of the most expensive industries for growth. Because if you want to get into a new retailer, there's so much upfront cost in order to do that. And then you have the distributor taking charge back, which you can't plan for. Some of them are legit and a lot of them are quote unquote errors. <laughs> um, and so even though we had a lot of distribution, we had gone through a lot of cash to gain that. Uh, gain that distribution. So there wasn't profit to invest into the sauces, into growing. So not only, you know, did we need um, packaging design and inventory and things like that, um, we needed money to basically pay for shelf space, which is what you have to do if you want to get into a retailer. And then unfortunately what I went, because I didn't, get as much debt as I wanted to, I really only raised enough to launch the sauces and not necessarily to be able to market them. So I went back to, to investors and said, look at my beautiful new sauces. <laughs> you know, these are amazing. And, and we had really bright, fun packaging that really popped on the shelf. And investors said, that's amazing. Congratulations. Come back and see me when you have some, a track record with the sauces and, and we'll see how they do. And, you know, basically I knew I hadn't raised or borrowed enough money to do much marketing around the sauces. So my fear was they were just going to sit on the shelf because we didn't have money to market them. So what was the deal you were pitching investors? Like what proportion of your company were you selling them for? How much were you selling it? What was the deal you were offering? I was trying to do convertible debt at that time. Um, and that was a couple of years ago now. So I don't remember the exact deal. And you know that's a huge learning process. And there are a lot of... Um, great folks in our area in the Boulder, Denver area who were advising me on that and, and helping me. But that took kind of several rounds for me to really kind of go back and forth and the feedback from the investors of how much I should try to raise. And that was a complicated, everybody you talk to has a different opinion on how much you should raise and how much you should give up for that. Um, so I tried multiple iterations, but none of them worked. 
Convertible debt, I'll just speak directly to my listeners now, is a very common way to finance an early stage company where essentially an investor gives you an amount of money as debt. And if and when there is a significant investment, oftentimes from a professional investor, like a venture capitalist or or so forth, uh, you can convert the money that you've invested in the way of debt into equity, uh, oftentimes at a bit of a discount uh, to basically reflect the risk you've taken in the early days. But it's an easy, relatively, um, uh, it, it overcomes the issue of how do you value a startup because it's it's very difficult to do that. So the convertible debt says, look, we're not going to value this right now. We'll let the professional money value it at some point in the future. Um, and so you went through this process. Did you raise any convertible debt at all, Julie? Or, or was it total, were you totally shut out? Totally shut out. Hmm. So then what? So you've got beautiful salsa, great packaging of the sauces there, but no money to kind of, you know, launch it. Then what happens? Right. So I decided that it was time to start looking for a buyer. And so take me through that. So you've got about a million in sales at this point. What, what, just give me the, like the numbers. What, what are you selling essentially? So... Yeah, so we were not to a million in revenue. Um, and being the second to market with the sauces after Frontera, and they were hugely successful with the sauces, um, you know, that was a lot of what I was, this, of course, the distribution we had, the relationships we had, um, and then the IP with the products. So I went out to start speaking with potential buyers. And in the food industry, that million dollar mark is magic. Nobody really wants to give you the time of day until you're there. So I was able to get quite a few meetings and have some decent conversations and even some back and forth. But ultimately, everyone said, you're, you just don't have enough um, proof of concept under your belt with the sauces. And we're not willing to gamble on that. So I was not successful in finding a buyer in my first path. How far away from you are you from that million dollars? I mean, are you, are you like, are you at 200,000 in sales or 500,000? Like, I'm just going to try to get a sense of how close you are to that, that magic number. Um, I don't know if, yeah, I don't know if the acquirer would want me to share that because okay. of, because that million dollar mark being their magic mark usually we were, we were fairly close, but you know, I probably, I probably shouldn't disclose that. No, that's fine. That's fine. So you're kind of getting close to the magic number, but not there yet. And so you went out to this round of investors. Who did you go to? Like, what kind of investors were you looking to? Were you? And by the way, Julie, were you trying to sell the whole company or just a portion of it? At that point, I was trying to sell the whole company. Um, I, I came to the realization that the brand needed a lot more resources than I could provide and also more expertise. And, you know, I would have, I wanted to stay on with the brand at that point. That was my goal. Um, but it just, the food industry is so complex and having a team with a lot of financial backing was really what the brand needed to grow. So you go out to look for, you know, acquirers and 
And so who was on your short list of potential acquirers? So in Boulder, Denver area, we have a few companies that buy small brands and and then they use their, then they have, you know, a sales team and a marketing team, and then those teams focus on multiple brands. So they get that economies of scale with, with their teams and then they're funded. So they have um, money to support the brands. So there were a couple of those. And then I also went strategically to a well-known national salsa company and I thought it could be a a good um, extension for them, and they were they were interested in the idea as well. You know, sort of capturing two different customers, but owning both both lines of salsa and sauces. What was your sense? And I know we can't get into the specifics about what you sold the company for. I, I get all that, but just thinking. Generally speaking, what's your understanding of the way food brands are valued? Are they valued, for example, on a multiple of revenue or or earnings? Like how how or how when you went into this process, what did you think the company was worth? Yeah, so in food, it's usually based on a multiple of revenue, um, and you know part of that reason is as companies are acquired, again, acquirers gain that economies of scale very easily by working the brand into their infrastructure. And um, it's so expensive to grow a food brand. I mean, my goal was never really to be profitable, but to always be reinvesting into the brand for growth. So um, yeah, food companies are a multiple of revenue. What, What multiple of revenue would they typically trade at? Like a small brand? A small brand, probably three times revenue. Um, Got it. We've we've seen some big brands go for seven. Got it. But 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 a very small brand, you know, cresting a million in revenue, you'd expect it to go for around three. Two to three, yeah. Two to three times top line revenue. That's helpful. So okay, so you take the business to market to some of these uh, companies, the Boulder Denver based company, as well as the the National Salsa Company. And you get crickets, no responses, no no interest? Right. I mean, I had meetings. Everyone had a meeting. Some resulted in two meetings with requesting more information. And um, and there was also a fourth. Uh, they were just looking to also expand their product offerings. But ultimately, everyone said, nope, you're not quite big enough. And have you got an advisor that you're working with at this point, or are you doing this all yourself? I had an amazing advisor. Um, his name is Bill Capsalis, and he's in the Boulder area. He's been in the food industry forever, and he went to every meeting with me and was on every call, every email. He was an amazing support, and just great to bounce ideas off of and to help talk through the options and the strategy. Um, he, he really, really was extremely helpful. But you've got no offers. Where does it go? From I got no offers, right? Yeah. So at that time I decided the chargebacks from the distributors were putting me out of business. And I realized that I needed to, stop that bleeding 
So I analyzed um, the business and 50% of revenue was coming from Whole Foods, Rocky Mountain region and King Supers, which is the Kroger banner in the Colorado area. So I decided to discontinue my products everywhere else, focus on those two customers because I could sell, I could sell the Whole Foods directly without a distributor. And the distributor that King Supers was using wasn't um, egregious with the amount of chargebacks they were charging. So, so the pivot was focus on those two customers and then grow the Amazon business with the sauces. And I had enough money to last about three or four months to see if I could make that pivot work. And this is the first week. This is the first we've heard about the, the, no, it's the first we've heard about Amazon distribution. So you were also selling it on Amazon? Yeah, not the salsas because they come in glass jars, but the sauces. And we'd only been selling on Amazon for four or five weeks at that point, but we were seeing quite a bit of success. And from what I had heard from other food brands, you could grow Amazon business pretty quickly, but you have to spend money on the marketing of that and getting people to write reviews and so on and so forth. Got it. So you've got three months of cash left. You're selling to your best customers and Amazon. What next? Well, then I got a $9,000 chargeback from a distributor and that pretty much wiped me out. So I decided on a Sunday, my um, stepfather was a big advisor to me as well. And we had a call on Sunday and decided it was time to pull the plug and close down the business. And uh, m- Monday, I laid in bed crying all day. It was, you know, obviously not what I had set out to do. And uh, Tuesday morning, I woke up and I thought, hang on a second. There was interest in my business, they just said I wasn't big enough. So for the right price, it seems like I should be able to sell this. So I sent an email to the four people who were most interested. And I said, I was totally honest, which doesn't put you in a great position of negotiation. But I said, I'm closing the business. If you're interested, make me an offer. I'm fine with some kind of long-term payout based on the success of what you're able to do with it. And by the way, I have a meeting next week with Kroger to present the sauces nationally. And I'm not going to the meeting unless someone is buying my company. And I've sent this email, the same email to four people. So let me know if you're interested. Wow. That was quite a story. So the four emails go out. What what next? Did you get any response? I got three emails back immediately um, that they were interested. And I mean, this was a Tuesday and my Kroger meeting was the following Tuesday. Wow. So okay. yeah, this is a crazy story. So, so I get three emails back and then I realized 
I don't have time to negotiate with three different people. So I eliminated one of them. <clears throat> In the emails, um, are they offering anything? Are they, are they saying, here, we'll, we'll give you X for the business, Julie? Or, or is there, was there any detail in the emails? No, no offers at that point. Just lets me and discuss further and um, some requests for financial information and distribution information and things like that. So, so once I, so I had narrowed it, you know, I had eliminated one. So now I have two that I'm working with. How did you I eliminate call, the one? What, like what, well, why did you eliminate the one? They just, um, they were newly getting into this idea of acquiring brands. And so the other two had more experience doing it, bigger teams in place. My impression was more financial backing. and. To me, it seemed like, especially if I was going to be paid based on the success of what they did with it, that, you know, those two were a better bet than the newer one. Got it. So you narrowed it down to two. Next, What's next? So I called the Kroger broker and I said, <clears throat> my company's being acquired. Can you buy me more time for the, the meeting? And he said, who's acquiring? And I said, I, I can't say yet. <laughs> I literally didn't know. So he called me back and he said, well, I have good news and bad news. I, I bought you more time, but I was only able to get two more days. So, so by the following Monday, I had two offers and, um, you know, was basically, I was able to use that to my advantage to sweeten the deal. We um, had a call Tuesday morning, finalized you know, the offers Tuesday afternoon signed a letter of intent, booked our flights to Cincinnati for the following morning, flew to Cincinnati, put together our presentation in the lobby of the hotel Wednesday afternoon, and then presented to Kroger Thursday morning. Wow. <laughs> what a dramatic story. I've got so many questions. So the, the two offers, what, what were the, what was the differences between the two offers? Were they were they similar in nature? How were they different? Um, let's see. So the differences included, um, so I had a lot of debt, which, you know, we talked about, um, I had, uh, accumulated some debt. So the settling of the debt was different in the two offers. Um, how I would be compensated for this sale was different. And then what, one thing that was the same was both offers included a, a short-term consulting role for me that may or may not, you know, could or could not turn into a full-time position. When you refer to the debt, um, I'm, I'm assuming you're, you're talking about the enterprise fund and the local producer loan program. Right. So, if you had defaulted on those, in other words, just shut down the business on that Sunday night and walked away, what would have happened to that debt? Were you personally liable for that debt? I, w I had personally guaranteed all of it. So, and it was uh, close to, well, with some older debt I had before those, I had about $250,000 in debt. Got it. So the prospect was shut it down and you'd owe two hundred fifty grand, or in this case, find somebody to buy something and, and potentially get that debt at least taken care of and potentially other benefits. 
you had the two offers. Um, this was obviously a fire sale. How, how, how did literally in, in hours, how did you, uh, how did you get, how did, what's the question? I'm trying to think of what the question I'm, I'm dying to ask is, how did you get them to a point of comfort to write an LOI in such a short amount of time? It's unheard of. I just, I'm struggling to see how they would have done that in such a short window. Well, so remember, I had already met with all of these companies months earlier, so they had a level of interest at that point in time, mm-hmm. and um, they were just able to move quickly, and the it, it just, I think, made sense for them, and, and again, no one wants to pass up a meeting with Kroger National to present your product. Did, yeah. Did Kroger end up buying? Well, what happened is, so the acquirer rebranded. So um, their company is Trace Latin Foods, and they have frozen pupusas and tamales and so forth. So by acquiring, all their products are frozen. So by acquiring my line, that got them into dry grocery and expanded their offerings. So when we pitched Kroger, there was this idea of rebranding and Kroger wasn't comfortable that we would be able to pull off the rebranding in time to um, meet. That's what they ultimately came back. They kept saying we were in the running and considering it. And then ultimately they said, you you guys are going to need to present the next go round because we're not feeling comfortable that you're going to be ready in time. Got it. Got it. So what happened between the LOI, which was obviously signed in haste, and the actual closing? Um, you know, it was a pretty, it wasn't that complicated of a deal. And, and, and it was really an asset purchase. So, um, you know, they asked for a ton of documentation, and which I submitted, but we right away started working on the rebranding and um, the transition as if the deal were done. Uh, So for me, I was running the existing business, working on the rebranding and continuing to negotiate the sales business. It was an insane time. I had three, what felt like full-time jobs. Um, But from the time we signed the LOI, which was right before Thanksgiving, we closed on January 14th. So it was a pretty quick deal. And so um, I, I have to ask, and I know you're, you're probably unable to tell me, but, but in terms of what you ended up getting for the business, did you, did you get the debt taken care of? Did you, are you able to tell us, kind of give us a sense of whether whether it worked out favorably for you or, or not, I guess is the, the ultimate question. Yeah, the debt was all settled through the process of that. And um, so I feel really good about that because, of course, I was considering filing bankruptcy if, if I wasn't able to get the debt settled. Um, so it's funny because I was presenting at a conference last week in Southern Colorado and after I told my story, a guy came up and he said, 
So the audience doesn't know if you are a success or a failure. <laughs> you didn't tell them. <laughs> and I thought that was such an interesting question because on, on some levels, you know, I felt like a failure. And then on some levels, I felt like a success because I didn't ultimately fail, right? <laughs> How did you feel like a failure? What was, what was it that made you feel that way? Well, that, you know, I had all these aspirations for growing the brand and, and being acquired in a much more glamorous way than, than what it ended up being. Um, the food industry is a tough one. There's just so much, the retailers and the distributors ride on the backs of the brands. And when you're small and not well-funded, there's, you just don't have any recourse to, to fight that. And in what ways did you feel like a success? Well, I did feel like a success growing the brand to 2000 stores and that was nationwide. So, you know, spread thin, but, um, and just being able to bring my products to market and be well-respected in terms of the quality of the products and, and the branding. Um, people really liked how different the branding was from the, you know, if you look at the salsa set, it's pretty bland and my branding had a lot of white space and we had this great character. And then the sauce, the branding of the sauces, um, we were really proud of, you know, how much fun those packages were and how much they stood out. So I think various elements made me feel successful and, you know, ultimately not closing my business. I was able to sell it. So that's a win as well. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I was going to ask you w what you would do differently if you had it all over to do again, but I actually want to refine that question because I'm specifically interested in and like going back to a certain point in time. And I think the time I want to go back to is sort of early 2017, maybe late 2016, when you made the decision for the first time that you wanted to be acquired and that you were going out to these companies and the response was, you're just not big enough. If we go back to that, if you could rewind the clock to that point in time, what might you do differently if you had it all over to do again? That, that sort of window of time, which was what about a year of time? Yeah, I, you know, I really think, I still believe there's so much potential in the sauces and trying, I, I mean, I, I thought I, I obviously wasn't compelling enough with the data that I showed for the sauces and how successful Frontera was and how we could be better than offer a better product, higher quality, better ingredients. And you know, be second to market in that space. I, I don't, I somehow would have tried to play on that more and convince people more of that, but that was my focus at the time. And so data is hard to come by. It's very expensive to buy. So I was using, you know, data that I could get my hands on, but perhaps spending the money investing in the real actual data that people could sink their teeth into may have made a difference. Being able to, to show real data in terms of volume of sauce sales, the potential of that industry, that business? 
Yes, and specifically what Frontera was doing in terms of their sales of the sauces, because that we were, you know, would have been going head to head with them. Right. Out of interest, again, I know nothing about food. If that isn't one thing that's made clear to this interview, <laughs> I don't know what is. <laughs> but how how would you actually go and acquire that information? Is there a what's what's what the source be of that uh, that information? So Nielsen tracks conventional data, like. Um, conventional would be uh, Kroger, you know, all the big conventional retailers. And then there's an organization called Spins, and they track all the natural channel data. So, um, well, two retailers don't sell their data, and that's Whole Foods and Walmart. So whenever you purchase data, you don't actually have those two retailers in that set of data. But otherwise, um, Spins collects data. Um, from all the natural channels, except for Whole Foods. Got it. So if you had it to do over again, you might have acquired the Nielsen and Spins data to really paint a compelling picture about the potential of the sauces business. Right. It's a fascinating story, Julie. I'm glad it worked out in the end uh, in in a, in a favorable way. It sounds like a, a, a great lesson. What's next for you personally? Uh, do you have another business on the horizon? I... I'm working on a couple of ideas. Um, so I'm, I'm, yeah, waiting to see. I'm, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family and this is the second company I've sold. And so I really feel comfortable in that entrepreneurial space. And I've learned so much over the years that um, I would love to do something again, I think. Well, it sounds like you've got uh, some ideas cooking. What's what's the best way if people wanted to reach out and say hi? I don't know if you you have social media connections that people could make. Are you a LinkedIn follower? Like, what's the best way for people to reach out? Yeah, LinkedIn for sure. Um, I'm the only Julie Nervelli, so it's easy to it's, find me. And it's N I R V E L L I, I believe. Yes. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Built the cell, Julie. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.